0: Okay, <clears throat> so uh, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 today. If uh, if you haven't been tracking with us for a while, we've been in 1 Corinthians for some time, so about seven weeks, um, working through, uh, Paul has a section in the letter on how ought we treat each other when we gather, so we're in the midst of that. And uh, last Sunday was actually part one to um, a text that we're going to complete today. So today's part two. So if you weren't able to watch last Sunday um, and you don't like what you hear today, I'll just say, well, you should have been here last Sunday (laughs) Uh, because I solved every problem you had last Sunday. Um, But we're going to start in the 14th chapter and... uh, But before we do, I just want to begin by reminding us of one of the beginning stories of Scripture. So this is uh, in Genesis 2. The Lord tells what feels in some ways like a second creation story. And uh, in this creation story, man is at the very beginning of the story. It says uh, early in creation... Sort of in the time when cre- the creative process was still settling, the Lord created man and he molded him from the earth and he breathed the breath of life into him. It was a, uh, this is verse seven, it was kind of an intimate moment. And then we, after that, we get several verses about the habitat that God made for man. He made him a garden, it was a paradise that was made for the man, and in the garden were two particular trees. One was the tree of life, and the other was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the Lord took the man, and he placed the man in the garden to work the garden and to have dominion over the garden. In the way, you might say, God was Lord of the universe, in the way that man was Lord of the garden. And as it goes on to be described, the garden is described as one with great provision and with one prohibition. They they take place beside one another. The Lord says to the man, you are free to eat of any tree of the garden. So you have this sense of abundant provision. And then there's one prohibition, he says, however, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you must not eat. For the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. After that, the Lord says... It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. And the Lord takes the animals that, the, that he had made and he parades them before the man. <clears throat> and the man gives the animals names. And Whatever the man names the animal, that is the name that the animal has. But in that whole parade of animals, no suitable helper was found for the man. So the Lord put the man into a deep sleep and removed a piece of his side. And with that piece of his side, the Lord formed the woman and he brought the woman to the man. And when the man saw the woman, he rejoiced and sort of said, she's like me, suitable. The way he says it is, this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. And he names her and I will call her woman for she was taken from man, and woman means from man. This section of the word closes with its own commentary. It says something like this. This then is the mystery of the man and the woman in marriage. That's kind of how it closes, right? For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And they were naked and they felt no shame. So I I think this is a a faithful uh, summary of Genesis chapter two. There's a few things I wanna draw out of this because we're gonna circle back on this today several times. I want us to note that the man came first, that the woman came from him and that the woman was made for him those three concepts are in the story and there's meaning connected to them. So the man came first and the word is gonna lean on that as a a precedent for headship. And the woman was made for him is going to be the rationale for roles and differences. In a way you might say, just as man was created for creation, the woman was in fact created for the man. And there's distinctives in that. The woman was made for the man. And then the third thing that the woman came from the man in that is, is the basis of equality. The woman is the same substance as the man. We'll be back here uh, sort of throughout the morning. So last week, when we were working through 1 Corinthians 14, we came to, uh, 14 starts to kind of dead ends in a list of rules. Practical rules based upon particular circumstances because of a root problem. That's, that's really how you have to read. How you, to, if you wanna properly read 1 Corinthians you have to read the circumstance in light of the root problem, and you have to read the rule in light of the circumstance. And so there's a root problem in Corinth. It's 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 in every circumstance you see. There's a meism in Corinth. There's selfishness and arrogance and pride and strife and division. There's an absence of love. There's self-centered spirituality. People are spiritual with themselves in mind. That's the root problem. Now the particular circumstance that we're looking at is one of gifts, gifts of the Holy Spirit. So if you imagine how gifts might be with the root problem in mind, you have people who think the gifts of the Spirit are about them and for them. I have this particular gift because I'm all that. It must be my spiritual maturity that has allowed me to have this gift. Or when I exercise this gift, I feel like I'm more valuable in the fellowship. You, you can imagine very clearly through this reading that there were people who found it very, very important. It was super important to them that they were able to exercise their gifts when people gathered so that other people might know just how important they were. That's the circumstance. And we get to the rule. Chapter 14 was the rules. Paul starts first with the lesser gifts. He sort of says, here's how, if you have a revelation or a teaching or a tongue or a song or something like that, here's how to do it. And he sort of lays out steps on how to do it. And then he goes to the greater gift, the gift of prophecy, which we've said is really more like forth than foretelling. It's approximately like preaching. And he says, he gives rules for that. He says, if someone, if a prophet wants to speak, let him speak let a couple speak and then weigh it. Speak and then weigh. The assumption is not, like you might think in Old Testament times that someone stand up and say, thus saith the Lord, and it was perfect scripture and that the prophet got tested and if he wasn't true, they killed him. Like those things you heard, that's not how it is in the early church. It's more like preaching. It's people reflecting and maybe speaking what they think the Lord is saying. But Paul is saying, Weigh what is said in the room. Weigh it, weigh it out. In other words, it may not always be right. He has this passage, he says, the spirits are subject to the prophets. The idea is even a little bit uh, possibly like, just because it's said doesn't mean it's true. It's subject To the weighing of the prophets. And it's in this context right here that we get a teaching about women in the church. And I find the context is very important. The context is in a rule that's part of a circumstance in response to a root problem. And here's here's the the teaching As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission. As the law says, also says, if there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. If we're gonna understand this properly, I think we need to understand it in light of the rule. It's taking place in the setting of, of the weighing of prophecy, which is in light of the circumstance of the proper practice of gifts, why would we practice gifts in the church? In light of the root problem, what's really wrong in the life of the church? Now, this teaching is, is hard, not simply because it's, it's kind of a short teaching, but also because we live in a time where this is a sensitive teaching. So there's already a little bit of charge around it when we come to it. And so last week, that's, maybe we kind of tried to alleviate some of that tension by dealing with the fact that we have biases with our worldview. And sometimes our bias makes us uh, take the scriptures uh, captive. And, and so last week, that was sort of trying to open ourselves up to, uh, especially if this is, sounds really, really hard to your ears, uh, to be open to the notion that maybe your worldview, maybe God today really wants to adjust your worldview is what he needs to do. Today, our goal Our goal will be to briefly survey the rest of what Paul teaches on the subject with this passage in mind. So we're gonna go to like passages. Look at uh, what does Paul say? Why does he say it? What's his rationale saying it? Which might help us, kind of inform us as to how we can come back here and make sense of it. And the ultimate goal, I think, in our heart would be that we are able to take the word of the Lord and be satisfied with the meal we're given, you know? if you're not satisfied with God, no amount of good news is good enough. And if you are satisfied with God, then everything is for your good. So that's our goal. So with that said, our first stop, and by the way, you're gonna turn pages more than normal today. Our first stop is gonna be 1 Corinthians 11. So just a page back. And it's worth appreciating there that a page back, we're in the same section of the letter, of the same letter by the same author. So it's, He's still kind of in an any given Sunday. It's at the very, in fact, the very beginning of an any given Sunday section. And he's dealing in this case with head coverings. Now, last week I mentioned, there's a verse in this section that makes, that gives a lot of, it pushes on the 14th chapter, which is verse five assumes that women in the church are praying and prophesying. So this is this, it's in verse 5 that that takes place but what I really want to do is just look at the whole context of this teaching. So I'm going to do a lot of summarizing because we have uh, so so many places to go today. But this situation in the 11th chapter <clears throat> here's the rule. Paul is saying the rule in the church is that men should have their heads or should not have their heads covered when they worship and yet women should have their heads covered when they worship. Apparently, women were uncovering their heads like men do in worship. And Paul's saying that's not as it should be. And verse three sort of captures the heart of his rationale. He says this, but I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ and the head of every wife is her husband and the head of Christ is God. So he broaches the subject of headship. In fact, he'll say something like this. For a man to cover his head in worship would be to dishonor his head, his other head, right? Likewise, for a woman to uncover her head in worship would be to dishonor her head, her husband. Worship should be done mindful of your head. It's very eloquent, actually. I mean, it's kind of twisty. You should do to your head what you ought to do, mindful of your head. It's kind of what he's saying. He picks up in seven through 10. He starts to give a little bit more rationale. He says it has to do, his rationale is anchored in Genesis. Let me read eight and nine. Eight and nine is kind of the heart of this. Watch this. He says, for man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman. But woman for man—that's his rationale. He says you need to remember your origin. How is it that you came to be? It's not so much right when Paul says woman, man didn't come from woman, but woman from man. It, that's not such. That really is more of a who came first question. That's really another word from there, but it's really a first issue. Man was first; woman came second is a subject of headship here. Now in the verse 11, he's actually going to balance out. He's gonna kind of breathe or speak a word of equality into the whole subject. So he'll say, nevertheless, I mean 11, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man nor man of woman for as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. All things are from God, right? So he's, you know, he's trying to capture, hey, don't take this too far. But the point is, he's saying, in the beginning, God made man first, and woman came from him. And God made man for himself, but God made the woman for man. The man was made for creation, the woman was made for man. That's his rationale. He then picks up at 11 through 13 and he makes an argument from nature. he's going to essentially say, he's going to give an example that's a little bit not off topic, but he's going to use an example of men to offer an implicit teaching for women. He says, it would be improper for a man to grow his hair out like a woman. It would be shameful in the church. Now, I know you don't think that now. Like, you know, it's customary. There's some context here. I mean, but back then he would, he's saying it would be highly inappropriate for a man to adopt the mannerisms of a woman. The, the implicit question is here, why then, why then should a woman think that her path to clear, redeemed worship before the Lord is to adopt the mannerisms of a man? That's what he's saying. Let's remind ourselves of the root problem. Problem. The root problem is gaining glory for one's self. That's the problem in this church is people are twisting their spirituality in order to gain value and glory for themselves. And in this particular circumstance, women are interpreting redemption as becoming like men. I'm supposed to worship, now that I'm a person, I'm supposed to worship like he worships. And Paul is saying, no, you, you are not thinking about this properly. You're different. In other words, there's this, this, this incorrect association that the women of the church are making, which is for me to be redeemed is for me to adopt the pattern of men or that equality equals equivalency that equal equals same. And Paul's pushing on that. No. A redeemed woman does not look like a man, does not act like a man or behave like a man. They ought not to covet the things that are mannish, but rather they should remain very womanly. I find... And I be careful here because <clears throat> kind of the the clear lane of scripture on these matters deals with the home, marriage, and the church, so like how to open those doors and walk out into the prevailing culture where the church doesn't rule or reign or have much of a vote anymore, and how to live this out like my my place is to speak God's word to the wall here of the church so um, I, I think there's principles that follow us out. But but what I, what I do want to draw attention to is the nature, the common nature of prevailing secular feminism, which I think is actually uh, quite appropriate to think about in light of this church. What you find in prevailing secular feminism is... Um, A message like if a woman really wants to be free, then her body is her own and she can do whatever she wants with it. Like the autonomy of the body. You see how freedom is? No one can tell me what to do. And then you have uh, in that, you have this sense of um, dissatisfaction. In, In secular feminism, there's a dissatisfaction with prior or... Uh, former roles and traditional categories that woman once held. Now, there's a lot of things wrong with the world, so I, I'm on board with some of those things. But it's, a, it's a, almost a ubiquitous dissatisfaction with former roles, as though there really are no distinctions between men and women. We, we can and ought to do all the things that you can and ought to do. In fact, the notion of secular feminism is... Uh, that in order to be free, we must be the same. This is not what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, as God sanctifies a woman, she becomes more pristinely woman. And as God sanctifies a man, he likewise becomes like a more godly man. But the distinctions remain. All right, let's go to, <clears throat> let's take a trip now to 1 Timothy. So a quick word on 1 Timothy. Timothy uh, 1 Timothy is what is called a pastoral epistle. What that means, it's a letter written from Paul the apostle to a, a leader of a church, Timothy, a pastor. Um, and a byproduct of this is um, it's less enjoyable to read <laughs> because it's Paul talking to a pastor about the church, not to the church. All right, so it feels that way. Okay, so at pastor's conferences, you hear pastoral epistles preached all the time. But in the church, actually, it's difficult for a pastoral epistle to rise up because there's some elements of it that are may feel so insensitive to the body who's actually not supposed to, it's not that they're not supposed to be the audience. They're not the first ears of the letter. So you can imagine I'm saying this for a reason. Uh, Paul's gonna say something very flat, very just frankly, and it's because it's a pastoral epistle, okay? But um, and I'm gonna pick up in the ninth verse. Verse eight deals with men. It's, I'm not trying to avoid the teaching on men, but that's not what 1 Corinthians 14 is about. In fact, I'll say this my temptation all throughout this message is to go off and talk to men because it's easier. Okay, so uh, <clears throat> if you want me to preach to men, I'm more than happy to do that. Uh, but here in verse nine, as I read it, what I want you to hear is you will, I think you will hear something that's very reminiscent of First Corinthians 11 about sort of dress and attire, head coverings, that sort of thing. And First Corinthians 14 about... Weighing the word of God in church. Okay? You, I think you'll hear them both. 1 Timothy 2 9. Likewise, also, that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. That sounds to me like 1 Corinthians 11. Now listen to this. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. That sounds to me very much like 1 Corinthians 14. Now here's his rationale. Listen to this. For Adam, this is verse 13, for Adam was formed first, then Eve... We're back to Genesis again. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. So let me stop there for a second. Adam was formed first. Again, we have this, right? In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says, well, man didn't come from woman. Woman came from man. We have this idea of headship. Here he says, Adam was formed first. Now, there are times in life where who gets first and who gets second is pretty irrelevant or even silly. You know, two kids who get out of the car, the minivan at the park, and they race to the swing set. First one wins, right? Nobody cares. They argue and squabble because somebody got a head start. And as a parent, you're like, I don't care because it doesn't matter who's first. This is not one of those, apparently. Paul is actually saying this matters. There's meaning in this. He's bringing it up because it's purposeful. God made man for creation. God made woman for man. So I think it's, it has in it the spirit of headship. And then we have this second rationale. It was the woman who was deceived, not the man. Now, we're gonna, go to, we're gonna go to Genesis chapter three and we're gonna flesh all this out in a second. But what I do think is noteworthy, especially because right here in context, Paul's talking about a woman ought not to handle the word over men is he's bringing he's bringing us back to a point in the story where that exact thing did happen, where the woman did weigh the word out, and it resulted in deception. Now, before I leave, I got to do verse fifteen, um, which I'm, I'm sure is some people's favorite verse in the whole Bible. Paul says this, yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. So earlier this week, I was with somebody and this passage was on the table and and he read it. And when he read it, he didn't say anything to me. He actually responded with charades. He just did this. (coughs) Like the teaching was for him, like nails down a chalkboard okay I mean, he just quietly read it and after he read it he went and I and lots of ways I know I can imagine why for one to say childbearing immediately brings to me the moment of child like push (laughs) like the head is breached which nobody's saying that's the funnest moment in life or that's not a place where a woman goes I feel so valued right now like if it weren't for this moment I don't know where I'd be so I, I don't I don't think that's what Paul is saying. I don't think Paul's talking about the difficult labor or morning sickness or postpartum depression. Okay. What I do think Paul is talking about is the crowning glory of a mother in motherhood, which is something that is so woefully undermined and diminished in our time. What he's saying is what he's saying is is you have not been left out without purpose. You have purpose. And this is just another one of those places where I think redeemed womanhood is not manhood. It's womanhood. It's pristine womanhood. I think this is what Paul's saying, is you don't have to cross the lane into what he's doing to find the meaning of life. God made you. That's where the meaning of life is. Okay, let's go to Genesis 3. Let's try to unpack what does it mean that she was deceived first and why does that matter? Why why say that? Cuz ultimately Adam is the one the man is the one who has to who gets charged with the crime. Okay? Death came through who? Adam. Death came through Adam that all men die. So I am in Genesis 3 And I'm gonna pick up in verse one and we're just gonna like, we're gonna recall how this whole story went down, okay? So this is how verse one goes. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the other beasts of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? There's a lot to be said here, but there's two questions. If we have Corinthians in mind, there's two questions that immediately come to my mind which is, what is the serpent doing asking the woman this question? Okay. And why does she choose to weigh the scripture? She's weighing the word of God here. That's what's gonna happen. What's gonna unfold is she is going to choose to weigh out the word of God. So I, I, I think that's, this, is gonna be, this is a growing and alarming question throughout the story of the fall is why are things happening so out of order? Especially since the, the order was given so clearly in Genesis 2. Man first, woman from, woman for him. Uh, but here we see right in, in the beginning, the woman is gonna be given the task of weighing the word of God, and the literal word of God, and she's going to. And we should also know that the enemy, the father of lies, chooses. This is his takedown of mankind. Is to do it this way. His, I I can't argue directly from his strategy, but I can wonder. I can wonder about his strategy. Why? Why go to her on this? So she responds in verses two and three, and and the woman said to the serpent. we we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Now, is that that actually what God said? I, I, I don't remember him saying that they couldn't touch it. In fact, I don't remember the Lord ever having said anything to the woman. The woman did not exist when the Lord gave the prohibition. So here's how it is. Verse 16, the provision of the garden. Verse 17, the prohibition of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Verse 18, it is not good for the man to be alone. 19 and following, the formation of the woman. So in a sense, uh, the woman here is speaking She's commenting on the word as it's been handed down to her or handed over to her. And it even sounds that way. It has in it the embellishment you might expect. It's so common with rules in life. Um, I can imagine Adam saying, the man saying to the woman, this tree here, we're not supposed to eat from. In fact, how about we just not even touch it? That little addendum. You know, as parents, you do that. You know, we, we don't cross the street. You know what? In fact, how about we not even go past the sidewalk? You insulate the teaching for protection. It has in it. It has that, that characteristic feel here. And then we head into the passage, right? And you finally get to verse six. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate and then... The rest is history, and here we are today. Did you hear that he was present? He was there. She took some and gave it to the man who was with her. Now, in some ways, I got to say this I, this is the wrong language, but I don't have a better word saying. I, this is my least favorite passage in the whole Bible. It feels to me like the darkest moment in all of scripture. The darkest, I cannot imagine this scenario in my mind. And and I love to live in these stories. I cannot imagine in a way that's not really, really dark. Like, if he's there, why doesn't he say something? Or if he's there, why doesn't she turn to him and say, what do you think about what the serpent had to say? If he's there, why'd the serpent go to her? I mean, everything's wrong about everything by the fact that he's there. He's not way off on the, like, the other side of the garden in the potato field, working potatoes when this is going down. He's there. Why doesn't he step in? It makes you wonder who's really responsible here. Well, I think you're familiar with the story. Um, It all starts to come out, right? They feel shame. They clothe themselves with fig leaves. Uh, In the cool of the evening, they hide themselves from the Lord as he walks through the garden. The Lord finds them hiding, says to the man, why are you hiding? And they say, well, we were ashamed that we were naked. He says, ashamed? Why are you ashamed? Did you eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil?" He says, well, the woman you gave me, right? Blame game starts. To which she says, don't look at me. The serpent told me. Serpent deceived me. That's her excuse. The serpent tricked me. Right? It's like in, in an afternoon, they go from no sin to professionals at sin. Like they know this game. So, I mean, b- by the way, Adam calls out the flaw of his, his wife, the woman you gave me, and the flaw of God. She's not good and you're not good. The woman you gave me. I mean, if you see the level of rebellion that's already present? The defi- we, we know this, how defensive we get when we're caught. It's all right there. And so we end up in the, the, uh, the curses <clears throat> at the end of the third chapter. I really just want to concentrate on the curses to the woman and the man because I still think they're commentary on this broader subject. To the woman, the first curse is going to be, I will put, uh, this is verse 16, to the woman he said, I will surely multiply your chain in pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. That's the first part of the curse. What the Lord does, and he's going to do a parallel thing to the man. The Lord curses the very thing that was the distinct glory for the woman. So your glory was gonna be childbearing. I'm gonna gonna frustrate that. In the same way that the way the man was created to work the garden and to subdue the earth and have dominion over the earth, the Lord's gonna say that ain't happening anymore. The earth is gonna frustrate you until the day you die. The earth is gonna compete with you. It will not respect you. By the sweat of your brow, you're gonna have to fight just to make it. You see the distinct way the man was made is the distinct way that that he's broken. So that's the first part of the curse, and those are analogous for the woman and the man. But this second part of the curse for the woman is really quite interesting. He writes, your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. Now, what this means is something like this. For the rest of your days, he will in some way be in your way. You know how he's first and you're for him and you're from him? Well, you're not gonna like that. I think this is what the Lord is saying. You will be frustrated with your creative order. You'll covet his position as though somehow the answer to life lies in what he's doing over there. As though he's the problem. I think this is the curse of sin in womanhood. Now let's look at the man here. What's interesting about the man is, I mean, I mentioned the first part of his curse about uh, the difficulty with the ground. Uh, Obviously the greatest part of his curse is death, okay? But um, what I wanna note is that with the man, we actually get God's purpose in the curse, Okay, the accusation's clear. And it's not that you ate of the fruit. It's this, look at verse 17. And, Adam, and to Adam he said, because you listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree. Do you see that? Because you listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree. Because you stood back, in other words, or you stood down, or you abdicated, or you folded or you acted like you were second when really you were first, because you you sat back and let her weigh the word, my very words to you. You let her do that when I gave them to you and you're responsible for them, Adam, because of that death. Death will plague the human race. That's what the Lord says. The command was given to Adam. God formed Adam first, God made Adam for creation. The woman was made for the man, and they're of the same essence, they're equal. But to be equal does not mean same. So if we go back to 1 Corinthians 14, so we can ask now what maybe, what might be the meaning? And we need to ask this, remind, remind ourselves of the rude problem the me-ism of the church. There's people, the, imagine the members of the church are, have their own status and pride and ego and glory in mind. Men and women. Okay? And then you need to imagine the circumstance and the circumstance in the church is that men and women both have gifts. They both have gifts. They both... There's a lane in which they're exercising their gifts, uh, but the rule is coming in, right? And they're exercising their gifts on the whole because of the root problem poorly. They're doing it for their own status. I'm valuable because of what I can do, okay? And the rule of Paul enters in and says, in the section related to the weighing out of the word of God, in that section he says, women should not be doing that. That is not the rule for the woman. You might say, why? Why? Is it because she's not able? I don't think it has anything to do with ability. Not one thing to do with ability. I think it has everything to do with role. This is the role of the man, especially in marriage and also in the church. That's why he says, if you have a question, go home and ask him. I think that every time I get to these teachings, I wanna like, get my preach on with men. Okay. Because I think there's hiding behind it. It's the photo negative of the teaching. You ought to be taking this to him so that he can do what he's supposed to be doing. In other words, you ought not to be doing this because he ought to be doing this. He ought to be doing this. The church ought to be kept safe by him doing this well. I and I, so here's the irony. <clears throat> my wives are supposed to go home and ask their husbands. All last night, Andrea's fallen asleep in bed, and I'm like, I gotta ask you another question about this sermon. I like preach the whole sermon to her, and she's trying to fall asleep. I'm like, listen, like I'm going to the guillotine tomorrow, woman. Don't you know what's going on with me? And like, I wake up, like, can I say this? If I say that, what about this? How about that? Like the whole time, I'm going home to my wife to say, oh, what about this? Right. So, and I say that because in, in you've got to remember this is a church with massive problems. In environments of health, this stuff doesn't, goes away, right? Environments of health, women can honor the Lord as women and men can honor the Lord as men and things are as they ought to be and it just is beautiful and it works. Right? You don't even have to say things. There's things you don't, when things are working, you, there's things you don't even have to say. This is being said because it's so out of order. So I, I know that, you know, for some here, this might not be your favorite Sunday. Uh, what I want to say, though, is, is it, wrestle with the Word of God as it's been given. My goal of taking us through the Word was to say, like, this is not one tiny little place. It's, there's thoughtful reason in Scripture. Wrestle with all of that. And I would say these three things, these, these three lies that I think we can, agree, we, we can still garner merit from lie number one redeemed womanhood should aspire towards manhood that's a lie that's a lie now there's certainly things that men and women both do that are neutral or nine right i mean to sit at a calculator all day at a desk that's not manly going and getting a saber-toothed tiger and hauling it home that's manly you know, I mean, so, so there's a lot of things in life that are, like, I can't ascribe man or woman to, but, but what I want to say, it is a lie to say redeemed womanhood aspires towards manhood. It doesn't. Redeemed womanhood aspires towards godly womanhood and redeemed manhood aspires towards godly manhood. That's the truth. Here's lie number two. Equality equals sameness. It doesn't. It doesn't. It often doesn't. Throughout your day, your entire week, You go through many different ways where you're you're equal to somebody and yet not the same. Not the same level, role, position. We have bosses. Are we equal to our bosses? Yes. Are we the same? No, we're under them. You have children. Are you equal to your children? Yes. Are you the same? No, they're under you. We, We experience this in many courses of life very, very naturally. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Are they equal? Yes. Are they the same? No, the son only does what the father tells him to do. Do you see, do you see in a perfect world, the joy the son gets and brings to the father by being exactly what he's supposed to be? It brings joy to both parties. This is my son in whom I am well pleased. That's line number two. Line number three. My capacity or ability to do something is the only criteria I have to ask as to whether I ought to do it. Just because I can do it does not mean I ought to do it. Like in church, you and I are knit into a fabric of interdependent deference. I ought to live my life with you in mind. You ought to live your lives with us in mind. That is how we're supposed to live. The question is rarely ever as clean as, can I do it? then I'll do it. We, to be free from sin is to be a slave to Christ on this matter. And that's what we have been freed from, right? In Christ, this, we just end all of this with I'll cling to the old rugged cross. What Christ has done and bought for you, the way he has saved you and redeemed you, brings us into a place where we finally can now ask purely, what then am I supposed to do? That's where Paul wants us to be. That's where Paul's trying to get the church, to simply ask, Lord, what would you want me to do? I'm gonna go ahead and pray. We'll give this to the Lord. My hope is, um, you know, if we're satisfied with God, then everything is a feast. All truth is good news. Lord, we, we, we give you this, this time in the word. I wanna thank you for... Uh, the fact that you have not left us alone with one teaching, but that it's surrounded by uh, other passages that help us. I want to thank you for a history of faithful men and women in this church who uh, that image has helped to raise me. Uh, Lord, I want to I ask that you fill our minds with the right thinking of Jesus Christ. And spill from our minds the wrong thinking of the world. Lord, and I, my final prayer is that for everyone here, that they might, at the root of all of it, say, well, I know that in this fellowship I'm loved and valued. Lord, for if we can say that, then what more could we ask for? What a feast that would be. We pray this, Lord, in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.